0: This is Tell Me What to Read, the podcast of booktopia.com.au. I'm Nick Wasiliev, and today we have an incredible podcast special. Yesterday, the 2022 Stellar Prize shortlist was unveiled, and for those who are not familiar, the Stellar Prize champions the work of Australian women writers, cis, trans, and non-binary inclusive. They strive to promote Australian women's writing, support greater participation in the world of books, and create a more equitable and vibrant national culture. Novels, short fiction, memoir, social history, book-length essays and graphic novels are all eligible. But 2022 is an especially special year because this year eligibility was expanded to include, for the first time ever, poetry collections. Following the long list announcement on February 28th, we are delighted to announce the shortlist here. And I had the pleasure of sitting down with five of the six shortlisters to discuss their works. Here is the 2022 Stellar Prize shortlist in no particular order. Take Care by Eunice Andrada from Giramondo Publishing. Drop Bear by Evelyn Araluen from University of Queensland Press. No Document by Anwen Crawford from Girimondo Publishing, Bodies of Light by Jennifer Down from Text Publishing, Stone Fruit by Lee Lai from Fantagraphics, and Homecoming by Elfie Shiasaki from Magabala Books. Unfortunately, we were unable to have Elfie Shiasaki as part of this podcast. So before we begin our interviews with each of the shortlisters, I'd like to highlight her incredible poetry collection, Homecoming as part of the shortlist. Homecoming pieces together fragments of stories about four generations of Nunga women and explores how they navigated the changing landscapes of colonialization, protectionism, and assimilation to hold their families together. This seminal collection of poetry, prose, and historical colonial archives tells First Nations truths about unending love for children, Those that were present, those taken, those hidden, and those that ultimately stood in the light. Homecoming speaks to the intergenerational dialogue around country, kin, and culture. This elegant and extraordinary form of restorative story work amplifies Aboriginal women's voices and enables four generations of women to speak for themselves. This sublime debut highlights the tenacity of family as well as First Nations agency to resist, survive, and renew. The stellar judges have said of Homecoming that, quote, Homecoming is both a genre-defying book and a deeply respectful ode to the persistence of Nungar people in the face of colonization and its afterlives. Elba Shiyosaki writes with a steady and often invisible hand, amplifying the voices of people whose words have been buried for too long. Shiyosaki has produced a work of careful excavation. With an extraordinarily light touch on the page, Shiyosaki moves beyond authorship, occupying instead the liminal space of daughter, caretaker, and choir master to a chorus of voices. Chiyosaki has delivered a work of poetic and narrative genius and can be read either as an ensemble of poems or as a single piece that moves seamlessly between the elegiac and the joyful. Homecoming is a gift to the nation, one that works its magic with quiet grace and an unstinting clarity, unquote. We'd like to congratulate Elfie for her incredible achievement of making the 2022 Stellar Prize shortlist with this collection of poetry, Homecoming. So without further ado, let's dive into our first interview where I chatted with Evelyn Araluen on Drum Bear. Hi, I'm Nick Vasiliev and I'm delighted to be with you today. And it's especially exciting because I'm being joined by Evelyn Araluen. She is a descendant of the Bung Jalung Nation, is a poet, researcher and co-editor of Overland Literary Journal. She has published criticism, fiction and poetry and has been awarded the Nakata Brophy Prize for Young Indigenous Writers, the Judith Wright Poetry Prize and more. And we're here today to talk about her collection, Drop Bear, which is included in the shortlist for the Stellar Prize this year. Evelyn, welcome.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: It's great to have you. And first of all, again, congratulations. Um, It is so wonderful to see poetry recognized this year. And I feel like I should just start by uh, smothering you with praise uh, from the (laughs) Stellar Prize's description of of Drop Bear, first and foremost. Just a quote from them. Dropbread is a breathtaking collection of poetry and short prose which arrests key icons of mainstream Australian culture and turns them inside out with malice afterthought. Ara Lewin's brilliance sizzles when she goes on the attack against the kitsch and the cuddly, against Australia's fantasy of its own racial and environmental innocence. Unquote. Boah! What a start! Yeah,
1: it's really, <laughs> they they really gassed me up with that one. Still pinching myself a little bit.
0: How does it feel to be included in the Stella?
1: It's amazing. Um, I, like, aspired to be on a Stella shortlist, like, years ago when I first started writing, but I really did think I would have to bring myself to write a novel um, to eventually get there. So I didn't know when Drop Bear was published that the Stella was going to be extended to include poetry as well. It is just, like, it's an insanely ridiculous acceleration of some
0: of my wildest literary dreams. Well, it's wonderful that it is being recognised and it's fantastic that, uh, that, that's, that of all the things that, that you've been able to get shortlisted for, uh, this fantastic collection is the case. Before we dive into Drop Bear, I just want to ask you in general about the recognition of poetry, mm-hmm. because on a, on a personal level, I feel like today, po- in today's world, poetry hasn't really been given the chance to shine as much as I think it should frankly.
1: Yeah, it's it's harder to sell poetry. It's harder to market. It has, a, generally speaking, a smaller audience in Australian literature, as well as globally. Um, and that's, that's something that we're seeing some significant changes in, you know, the rise of Instagram poetry and the slam poetry. But there is a place, an important place for, you know, single authored collections, um, those really tight bodies of work. And I'm really excited to see how um, how many more works like that are getting out there in Australian literature at the moment? and then to have them being rec- to have them be recognized by prizes like the Stella is just, astounding. I think it demonstrates some really good confidence in the strength of Australian poetry at the moment, that investment in in the landscape. So I'm hoping that some other prizes also consider that expansion, or even if we can look at potentially starting some new prizes for Australian poetry, uh, hopefully it's the start of some really good new things that encourage people to read poetry if they hadn't, you know, if they hadn't already got
0: stuck into some of it yeah and the art form as well just the the chance to actually highlight that this is that poetry is a very important part of, of 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 just literacy in general it's incredibly valuable and to see it recognized with larger prizes i think it is something that definitely needs to happen but turning to drop bear especially indigenous poetry um i think it's some of the most compelling forms of writing australia has produced in general um particularly around how many poets of the indigenous poets of the past have often gone out of the way to really deconstruct the clear issues and, and paradoxes that exist within the culture of the Australian nation that we have at the moment. I mean, you Jack Davis's, your Lionel Fogarty's, and of course, uh, Ujuru. Um yeah. With Drop Bear, I sense you really wanted to kind of This is my own analysis, of course, looking at it, but you wanted to really hold a mirror up to the Australia of today um, with this work.
1: Yeah, I am interested in Australian nationalism and the problems that it creates, but also the myths that it sustains. And, you know, you might describe Drop Bear as being relatively minimal stakes, like talking about kitsch, talking about children's literature, talking about popular culture. But the reality is that um, these sorts of images, myths, archetypes, they're very persuasive and they continue to be recontextualized and re-commercialized in Australia. And I wanted to... Speak to that. I wanted to speak to how I was raised up, acculturated into these ideas as well, into these images, um, and the um, uh, the criticism that I think should be at the heart of how we view some of these things. It's not that I'm trying to cancel snuggle pot and cuddle pie. It's more so that I think that we need to have an open and honest conversation about how. The cute, the seemingly innocuous, the kitschy can actually be an extension of some broader and more vicious settler colonial ideals
0: mm, mm. I got a real st- strange sense of feeling as I, as I got the chance to check out sections of this, and that was and the word that kind of was sitting with me because it was complacent I mm. think yeah um, there was a great uh, pit patch that of, of poetry that you highlighted, and I just want to read it. Australia is a man's country, and you're here to die lovely against the rock, to fold like linenly into the into horizon and sweat beautiful blonde on the beach. Uh, and I, I, there was a, the feeling of, the, of that kind of complacent feeling that I got from this that you were trying to address, that yeah. I worry in Australia we are getting complacent, not just with the uh, the, uh, the cultural ad- uh, um, issues we need to address, not just between Indigenous and non-Indigenous, for example, but with everything,
2: with everything,
0: yeah. with, uh, with especially, for example, treatment of country, uh, mm-hmm. climate change, um, the entire space around that, the uh, politics, everything. And you occasionally provide image in this book, imagery and feelings in this book that almost feel... Apocalyptic is not, I don't feel, I feel like that's quite strong, but. I,
1: I am interested in how we think about and how we kind of visualize the idea of apocalypse and dystopia when so much of Australian culture is about aestheticizing the landscape as this beautiful down under outback kind of thing and you know particularly if you look at like some of those old films that were largely funded by Tourism Australia they're about selling an idea of Australia and it's one that Either we bought or, as you say, we've become complacent with it. But it's an unsustainable, it's an unsustainable environmentally and politically an unsustainable vision of Australia. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I just, I i don't like being sold my own country in these inverted, bizarre images that are usually about um, celebrating white culture and all of its toxic, um, commercial, ma- white masculinity. Um, bizarre kitschy ways so yeah I think complacency is a thing that I rile against particularly like if you're wrong about something you can be wrong about it but if you're just not educated on it enough to care or if you're refusing to engage with an issue and with you know, with underlying political, social, cultural concerns, I'm I'm quite finding myself quite frustrated with that. Very clever people who should know better, support and idealize tropes and images and stereotypes that are really they're not healthy for people and they're not healthy for country.
0: Yeah, exactly, and I think you've you've definitely achieved that in this in this collection because uh, while I, it did occasionally feel almost like apoc- apocalyptic in terms of it, I dare not turn away from the page because <laughs> it it, it was it was filled with responsibility and a desire to want to to make things right. And additionally, what I really liked about this, unlike a lot of works which just look purely at here is the problem, we need to do something about this, you make a optimistic prediction i sense near mm-hmm. the end of kind of redemption and hope for a decolonial future um obviously i don't want to get into spoilers of the poetry <laughs> because i encourage our listeners you go check it out yourself um but i'm curious because there is obviously so much work still to be done for us to achieve yeah the goals of a of a of a, recon- of a reconciled australia what 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 brought you to this conclusion as you were writing it
1: Well, it's interesting, your reading of that's interesting and I think I wanted to leave certain possibilities of the way that it ends um, ambiguous and some of them are ambiguous just because the collection ends with, um, you know, I see there being really two poems that end it. One is um, the official ending, which is a very esoteric technical prose poem about different kind of characters of Australian culture. And um, no spoilers, so I won't I won't sort of refer to how that one goes. But there is also another poem. The one that just precedes that is one about coming home to see family and to just spend a, nor- a normal, ordinary night with my family. And that one was written after eight months of being, um, being away from my family, away from my community because of lockdowns in Melbourne. Um, so I think... Um, I think hope is a radical act, like I, I believe that hope and preserving hope against all odds is not naive. I think it is work that reminds us to be human and to acknowledge ourselves as human. Because the temptation becomes to kind of extend country, the agency, to just erase us if it needs to. And that's something that, um, uh, you know, that's a, it's, it's a I've, I've heard it described with the term misanthropocene, which is a kind of um, uh, an endorsement of the power and potential for humans to essentially be the sacrifice to the Earth's continuity. But the reality is that, no, the land does actually need humans participating in it. Certainly Aboriginal country needs that. Um, We have our roles and responsibilities. So I think the collection kind of ends in a place of really trying to balance out that easy temptation to just endorse the idea that well whatever else happens at least country will survive even if even if humans don't at least country will survive with an actual necessity to remind ourselves that we are human and that as humans we have a responsibility here and that we can't simply just accept the idea that um we can just fade into darkness with no more responsibility no more accountability from that so you know the whole collection is attempting to think about these problems not from a point of moral righteousness rather to kind of think about how we're all um we're all entangled in these ethics you know nothing there is no ethically pure situation you know i acknowledge as well in the collection like hey i love snuggle pot and cuddle pie i love all of these terrible tropey films and books like it's it's you know it's, addicting for, it's addictive for a reason. They are alluring aesthetics for a reason. I'm not above that or beyond that in any capacity. And um, similarly, I don't think I have solutions. I don't think the book pretends to propose solutions for a lot of the political, social and environmental crises that it does reference. But, um, you know, rather just to sort of emphasise that however we imagine it, there does have to be a place for the radical possibility of survival and what that would entail in terms of our responsibility
0: in an ongoing way to country. Is that the kind of key learning that you, you took from having written all of this? Because I always like to ask, finish our podcast by kind of asking all the authors or the, the, the poet or whoever, um, what the actual, I always find that the, the process of creating a book actually often teaches you yeah. More than anything else, so you go through experiences of writing and, and crafting this work and you you end up learning something about yourself or something about the world that you didn't before. Was that the end point that you just kind of arrived at or or did you get other learnings from mm-hmm. having taken the time to sit down and create this work?
1: I think that's a really good question for a start. I will say that. And that's something that I haven't necessarily thought about in my own process. What did I learn from writing that book? Um, but I think um, you know I think I learned quite a lot but yeah I guess that um, uh, that that emphasis of hope as the it, it's harder to hope it is actually it's not the easy naive thing to do and when you're writing about um, you're writing about these seemingly minimal stakes but ones that are essentially microcosms of much broader issues of um settler coloniality um it's easy to um it's easy to kind of get fatalistic it's harder to actually do the work to think about how we might address these problems um how we might think about them in our everyday life but also think about them in a kind of a historic way in the sense of nationhood in the sense of identity and what that that symbolizes for our relationship to country so um I learned that and I also probably did learn at one stage that I really don't know how to spell and I'm just very glad that I had an editor. Um, worked that one out luckily before the manuscript was printed so yeah two lessons two lessons of equal value and
0: importance i appreciate that i appreciate that the, the more you that you you learn to write and learn, and 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 spell and things the more you realize god i really need to improve my spelling and grammar oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. um Ellen, i could honestly chat to you all day um but unfortunately we'll have to leave it there thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and chat to us about drop Bear. it's been a pleasure um and congratulations again on making the shortlist you should be really proud of this of this collection and i hope that it hopefully draws a lot more people to actually go and check out this collection for themselves and, and see what you have to say um, within within it
1: thank you very lovely to chat.
0: drop bear is published by university of queensland press and you can get your copy right now from booktopia.com.au Now over to our second interview with Lee Lai, author and illustrator of Stone Fruit. Hello, I'm Nick Basilev and I am delighted to be talking with you all today. And it's especially just exciting because I'm joined by Lee Lai. She is an Australian cartoonist living in Montreal and she's been featured in the New Yorker, McSweeney's, the New York Times, but we're here today because she is the author and illustrator of the beautiful graphic novel Stone Fruit, uh, which has been included in the shortlist for this year's Stellar Prize. Lee, welcome.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's it's lovely to have you here. And first of all, just congratulations. Um, just to see you, you know, flying the flag for, for graphic novels on a personal level, I'm just like, yes. Um, but also kind of seeing you recognised uh, with this shortlist, it's just such a wonderful achievement. And kind of before I kick your brains about this wonderful book that you've put together. I feel like I should just give you a victory lap um, and just let the, the stellar judges comments just speak for themselves for a moment. They, they kind of described this as quote, a deceptively simple depiction of the many various and complicated versions of familial love and care we can experience in our lives. Stone fruit is a work that is honest, unassuming and powerfully told unquote. This book has left a impression on a lot of people. Um, it's I've seen it kind of, it, it was a, an honor book at the uh, ALA Stonewall Award. It was a, a finalist at the Lambda Literary Award for LGBTQ comics. How does it feel to actually now
2: be included in the Stella? It's wild. Um, it's like, I mean, I feel like I've got to be a bit of an ass for a second, but I'm new to publishing and like, this is the first, this is my first book that I have published. I've been doing short comics and kind of independent comic stuff for the last decade. Um, But I don't know a lot about the publishing world or the literary world. And so it feels really special to be recognized by a literary award that's not comics focused as much as it's been really great to get comics recognition for this book. Um... And also, you know, I'm in in Montreal now. I've been in North America for the past nearly six years, which is wild. Um, And so most of the things that have been happening surrounding the book, because my um, my publisher is American also, have been in North America. And, you know, I grew up in Australia and I don't know whether it was intentional, but I feel like a lot of Australian media was really pushing Australian media and, and kind of monitoring how much American media was coming in. I feel like I grew up with mostly British media. Um, and so, I didn't know a lot of the North American um, book awards and 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 conferences and things that I ostensibly should be excited about. And so when when my book started kind of getting included in lineups and 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 noted by certain institutions and whatever, like you know, my, my publisher would be would be calling me, being really excited, and I couldn't quite figure out how to be excited because I didn't have kind of context for it, but. The Stella, I do know about, <laughs> and so I've kind of been more excited about that than anything else, um, because I have all this context for it, and I've admired authors that have been on the Stella, and it's also, you know, in my hometown, so it just feels really, really exciting.
0: Yeah, it's it's fantastic to to see you, to see you included on this list, um, and additionally, I'm I'm like I'm not surprised that it's kind of it's bowled you over a little bit, especially just in in the writing process kind of for many readers, you know, you see a book on an award and being nominated for an award, but as writers, when you're writing this book, you don't often think about awards. You're just writing for you at the end of the day. You've just got this story that's in your head and you're crafting it for you at the end of the day. And it's, but it is wonderful to just see that this story that you've been working on for a long time, just getting the recognition that it deserves. It's a really beautiful book. So for listeners who, aren't familiar um,
2: with Stone Fruit, what is it about? Oh, God. Um, say <laughs> when I published this book, well, before I published this book, I was trying to explain what it was about to people and I was just going on these really long tangents and getting really confused and then it wasn't until I gave it to someone who markets books for a living to get a copy edit, it and I was like, oh, that is what it's about. But um, so I feel like at this point I'm kind of copying the what my publicist wrote about the book and what reviewers have wrote but um it's about uh the relationships between two queer aunties who are in a relationship with each other and the kind of the breakdown of their relationship and then from there the book kind of splits out and explores the relationships that they have with each of their families who they have complicated ties to and like have kind of pushed away and then a trying to reunite with in different ways Um, and the kind of spark plug that pulls them all together is this six-year-old niece called Nessie who has particularly um, fun ways of doing play um, and also is quite watchful and quite sensitive to the adults and the anguish that they're experiencing Um, and it's just it's set over a series of months of of their relationships kind of coming to a bit of a catalyst and swells around a winter where everyone's having a bit of a bad time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you killed me. Well, this,
0: with this book, you killed me. Like, there's no sort of uh, of stereotyping. There's no sort of pandering. This just shows relationship these relationships as they are. I just, I've I've been lucky to you know have some of my closest friends you know are, are trans or, or transitioning, um, and some of the things that they've you know talked about with me on a a personal level is stuff that is all peppered all through this book. Um, with her sister, um, you know, who her religious sister, like who just really struggles to come to terms and grasp with the entire notion of identity that Mm -hmm. that trans people, first of all, have to go through themselves, which is an incredibly difficult experience, but then Mm -hmm. come to terms with on their own in their own personal way. Um, as well as as ray with her sister um single her single mother who who works like crazy and is very angry and resentful and a very you know tough character um like she's she she's she's gone through a lot herself it's like there's there's a lot of of, of intricate detail here that when i was looking at this book i just thought this has just happened like uh, like the, the stuff that you're speaking about and you're talking about here i just see happen like it it's it's everywhere it's just how it is which is something i think is is so beautiful that you've you've captured these these
2: moments here in this book i mean thanks that's so cool to hear um like the funny thing is that it like most of it didn't actually happen like it is very much fiction and um i think the fact that it's fiction and it's kind of made up is uh, important to me because I don't think like I've met a lot of artists especially in the comics world who really do memoirs so well um, and they write really really intensely from their own experiences um, and I think that is incredible but it is so unrelatable I don't know if I could write anything vulnerable if I was writing about my own experiences because I think I'd be really really cagey and I think I'd be doing a lot to be like somewhat dismissive of the emotions and the experience um, and I think fiction allows me to Make the like emotional lives of the characters more candid. You you're not, you're not <laughs> putting them in a box. Ideally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, You're
0: not putting them in a box. You have you have, you have the, the the play space to really kind of take them in any direction, um, which yeah. is which is great. You you do show love in all its forms here as well. I I, I to ask talk about you know Bron and Ray, kind of the the central kind of couple in this in this story, because they really uh, they really love. And relish their role as kind of the the fun aunties uh, to to Nessie, who you, who you talked about at the top when we were describing this book. And I also kind of got that sense of you, you, when you when you're a child, you always remember life so fondly. But then when you're you're an adult, you you always have to put fronts up, uh, particularly when you're around uh, children. Um, and of course, you know you, you see that happen, and then it's, of course it's brought that front is brought down for the reader when you know we see the strains that this relationship is under, especially you know bronze depression that she's dealing with. It 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 is I, the, the feeling I got after after finishing it was that it is it is a bleak. It's bleak, but there is beauty in the bleakness. Um, there's there's love. There's a, a dance with depression. There's a lot here why kind of on that, on that topic of, you know, uh, having, you know, using fiction as that space, why are relationships and particularly relationships like this? So just compelling to write for you.
2: I ask myself this all the time. I <laughs> Love consuming stories about difficult relationships. Like I'm always compelled when friends talk to me about like their family relationships or their romantic relationships, their friendships with me, like in all of their glory and all of their difficulties. Um, It's fascinating. I don't know, like it's something that's been interesting to me since I was a kid. Um, My skills and language and frameworks for thinking about relationships are constantly changing um, as I meet more people who are growing and able to articulate their experiences more as I'm experiencing that with myself. Um, But I think it's always been something that my life orients around. And that therefore I think anything I'm gonna make just gravitates towards as well. Um, And it was important to me to write relationships that weren't, that had no archetypes in them. Everyone's messy, everyone's doing the best they can. Um, I wanted to write a breakup where No one's no one's the asshole, but everyone's making mistakes um, and everybody's trying as hard as they can, because I think most of my experiences with difficulties in relationships is that, you know, the closer I get up to someone, the less of a villain they are and the more they're just complicated and messy. Um, I... I guess it's like the fun part is realizing that other people are interested in that too. <laughs> it definitely leads to great conversations in my life and it leads to really interesting dialogue between like anyone who's willing to consume my work and me if they want to talk about it with me.
0: <laughs> it's, it's great that you are, that you did talk about this because I feel like if, if particularly, you know, every there's always a front in this in this day and age, especially because of our, I think, par- partially our, I think, Based around our new hyper obsession with social media, that mm. again similar to similar to the the front that, that 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 Bron and Ray put up with Nessie, we put up a front for everyone else that everything is fine. But relationships are never fine. Like, and I think you, we should we should embrace that. We should embrace if we have figured out relationships, we wouldn't be having you know conversations like this. And the truth is, I we'll never as a species we'll never figure out relationships. Um, and it is always great to just talk about it together and explore it together and see what we do right and what we do wrong. And there is no right way to do anything. And I think it's wonderful that you've, uh, you're, 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 tackling this head on, um, with this book, because it's just, it's just like, Oh, thank you. Finally. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Yes. Oh, just, nice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's warts and all. And I love it. Uh, and it also plays into the illustrations because I mean, this is a graphic, this is a graphic novel um and i really want to you know talk to you a little bit about them if i can because um first of all i just i love graphic novels i mean i grew up reading you know v for vendetta and uh, all of those are really wonderful uh, like books uh, and uh i think it's a really underappreciated art form um you know there are so many wonderful graphic novels out there um <clears throat> and the illustrations here are kind of very its similar to the line of like bleak but beautiful. There's, there's, a, there's a real beauty and melancholy to them. I, I was kind of looking up reviews before, you know, chatting to you about this. And, I, and Rachel Cook from The Guardian kind of had a, a very funny way of describing it as kind of having a minimalist indie film tone which I thought was, uh, <laughs> which I thought was like interesting, like it captures it, but also like, yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of see that a bit. What, what was the feeling that you wanted to go for with your, with your illustrations? Cause, and additionally, I feel like we should also, I should also kind of, it's a good opportunity now to kind of, can you explain how difficult it is on top of that for, for graphic novelists to kind of strike that balance between words and illustrations as a combined storytelling tool?
2: Yeah, it's fucking hard. <laughs> like obviously, every <laughs> every cartoonist has their own way of doing it. And that's what makes comics so exciting. And I think I'm in a good world um, of being surrounded by cartoonists who are just absolutely frothing the mouth to talk shop and to to discuss ideas. And everyone's really, really excited about their craft. Like for an industry when people don't make much money at all, if any. Um, and it's like not a real job. Everyone just cares so much about it and has so much to say about the form. Um, and I think like any creative form, it's exciting in its limitations. So the fact that you're confined to panels, if you will, um, to pages, like there's lots of things that are difficult about like combining text and visuals at the same time, it's like complicated to read sometimes. It's kind of, you have to have some idea of semiotics and visual communication to make sure that you can be understood. Um, Like, But there is so many ways in which things can be communicated only through graphic novels and and cartooning in general, like um, that I think is really, really exciting. I think there's something about the pacing of sequential imagery Um, There's something about being able to draw dialogue to, like, make dialogue part of your visual compositions that is just so exciting um, and can be, like, a really fun experience as for a reader as well, which I would hope is the case. I think I tried to make this book very easy to read as far as graphic novels go. I think I've read some really difficult graphic novels in terms of the density of the images or, like, the complexity of the layouts. Um, Most of this book is a four-grid Uh, There's not a lot of dialogue in each frame. Like, I think I tried to space it out relatively sparsely. So it's not like a heavy, heavy on the eyes kind of read. Um, And that felt important because it is kind of a bummer of a story. (laughs) And so I want it to be able to be a fluid read so we can kind of like pull, pull, pull each other through the harder parts of the book, you know?
0: Mm. Well, I, 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 I'm I glad you did it because it works. It kind of, it's simplicity, but, you know, it's, a, it's also kind of that less is more. You kind of work that simplicity into a strength given what the story is about and who the story is about and how it's it, it, given the themes and the nature of the story. It's uh, it, it, just having artistic, excessive artistic sake for artistic sake can sometimes be a bit of a detraction. Um, yeah. And just keeping it simple and to the point, but letting the actual artwork and the story tell it together, uh, I think really uh, added hugely to it. Um, I don't want to kind of re- like repeat uh, like y- your standard boring ca- question of, of what you want this o- your audience to get out of it, because I think any answer to that question is we'll read the book and find out, damn you. So instead, <laughs> I-, I kind of want to ask at the end of this, uh, of this chat,
2: what did the book teach you? Um, well, I think I wrote it, it taught me a lot about the technical trials and learning curves of, of doing a long form fiction piece. Um, and it taught me that even as in life, like people can surprise you, (laughs) even if they're made up. Um, I, I, was surprised a lot by the characters as I wrote them, like how much more there was to them than I thought there was and how, I can't put people in boxes like initially Amanda was supposed to be just more of an antagonist and she still is in many ways. But she's also got a lot of lovable qualities and reasons to feel you know, gently towards her. Um, but I also wrote this book on the tail end of kind of learning my own specific lessons about um, how relationships are out of our control to some extent and people are complicated <laughs> and we can be doing our best and things still can fall apart. Um, and so I think this kind of uh, this book was the kind of manifestation of that, so to speak. Like it was the, it was the closing of that and also the opening of the next chapter of figuring out like, well, what's next. And I think the characters, the the book kind of ends with the characters asking that question as, as was in my life when I finished this book and is still and probably will be for the rest of my life.
0: <laughs> yeah, indeed. It's there's there's so much to take out of this book and it's it's wonderful that it's just such a, a wonderful nuanced examination of of something that is that is in the everyday which is great and it's it's wonderful that the the Stella Prize judges have, have recognized this book and it's wonderful that you've made it to the shortlist. You've made it to the top 6 which I think is fantastic. Um, Lee, I could I could talk to you all day. I really honestly could, uh, but unfortunately we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to come chat with us and congratulations on making this shortlist. You should be really proud of this book. You really
2: should. Thank you so much. Thanks for reading it. Thanks for telling me what you think.
0: Yeah, it's it's a wonderful book and everyone should definitely go and check it out. Um, Stone Stonefruit is published by Fantagraphics. And uh, you can go check it out on the Stellar Shortlist Prize, Stellar Shortlist right now. And you can also get your copy from Booktopia.com.au. Now, over to our third interview with Stellar Prize shortlister Nis Andrada, author of Take Care. Hi, I'm Nick Wasiliev and I'm delighted to be talking with you all today and it's especially exciting because I'm joined by Eunice Andrada. She is a poet and educator. Her first poetry collection, Flood Damages, won the Anne Elder Award and was shortlisted for the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for Poetry and the Dame Mary Gilmore Award. But we're here today because she is the author of another compelling, unapologetic collection of poems, Take Care, which has been included in the shortlist for this year's Stella Prize niece welcome. Thank you so
3: much. Hi, Nick. And hi,
0: everyone. Um, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to come and, and chat to us. And first of all, congratulations uh, on making the shortlist. It is so wonderful to see poetry included in the shortlist this year. And I feel like uh, I, I want to start by actually mentioning the commendation from the Stella Prize itself. Um, they said, and I just want to quote, uh, Eunice Andrada's second poetry collection meditates on the ethics of care and the need to dismantle in order to recollect, to recover, and to create. Take care is a collection that understands the ways in which there are ways we must kill so we can live to celebrate, unquote. I think this is a fantastic, uh, it's very difficult to summarize this beautiful collection that you have put together, but I feel like this summary does a damn good job as just as it just to, to touch the surface of it first of all how does it feel to even be included um in the stella
3: oh it's so exciting um i'm the biggest cheerleader for poetry so um i am just so happy that poetry is being elevated in this way so often poets and their poems are in their weird little corner <laughs> in, in literary prizes so it feels a little strange for People to care about poems all of a sudden. Um, whereas, like, um, you know, I've been shortlisted for poetry prizes before, specifically for poetry. People are like, you know, people around the artwork, you know, don't care. But um, this, is, this is different, <laughs> I guess, um, just from the, the reaction of some of the people around me. Um, so it's really special. I'm so happy to see people like Evelyn in there as well, and Elfishio Saki and Lucy Van. So um, mm. it's a company of great poets.
0: Yeah, you are. It's wonderful to see the poetry that the the poets that are being recognized. And before we actually dive into this collection, I actually want to poke you a little bit more about this poetry representation, if I can, because. Um, I feel like poetry isn't talked about enough, just in general these days, as much as it should. Which is why, again, first of all, I'm glad to see it being recognised this year in the Stella. Where do you think poetry sits in the 21st century in general? Because um, I feel like it needs it needs to be talked about more.
3: Mm, definitely, no. I, I I'm a huge, huge believer that poetry should be absolutely everywhere um, in our ep- everyday conversations um, and and, and our kind of like cultural references we so often draw from like pop culture uh, and TV and media, but like um, in my own little world, I'm always drawing from like the poems that I read and the poems that me and my friends read. So those are the references that I gravitate to very quickly, but it should be everywhere and it should be celebrated. And it's great that prizes like Stella are making those steps to elevate poetry and poets, but there's definitely such a long way to go in terms of giving us the kinds of platforms that we need to create our work, um, to celebrate our work, and to share our work.
0: Exactly. I feel like there's an, a real need right now to poetry isn't given I think the it should be be available to kind of push itself out there and be allowed to have the platform as an art form to be, to be recognized a lot more. And it is wonderful that that you know we we are having, you know, prizes like the Stella that are, that are putting it out there, but hopefully we can start to see that a little bit more and also people start to see the value that poetry brings. It's it's a huge yeah it does so much good mm-hmm. it's such mm-hmm. a fantastic good not just for the world of literacy but just in general so many yeah. fantastic poets have summarized things that, in ways that you know people it, it, it suddenly gives it the means for people to actually understand the world mm-hmm. around them which is invaluable
3: yeah. i definitely feel like you know we say that artists are cultural workers but I really see and feel and experience that with poets in particular, mm-hmm. um, the ways that um, the poets around me move and speak, um, the ways that we're, you know, like Librarian Poetry, for example, which is this organization in New South Wales um, has established Poetry Month, um, you know, our, our very own Poetry Month in Australia New Zealand. So like the poets are out here working, yeah. working really hard. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yeah it is and producing fantastic work as well and on that let's talk about take care um this collection is direct it is honest it talks politics it talks power it talks rape culture i love the description of, of that that you had for it talking it as being means to survive within systems not designed for tenderness um you analyze so much about the patriarchy the ongoing problems with it you have, I really love hearing authors' and poets' perspective about the the place that sent them down this path to create their work. What brought you to this headspace where you were in when you were crafting this collection of poetry?
3: Um, For me, what brought me there was just a lot of silence, you know, the silence and the kind of stagnation of lockdown, but also this, this feeling that you know, in that silence, I could no longer ignore, uh, ignore healing from and processing and facing the things that I had, um, that I had kept away or hidden away for so long. Um, the things that I hadn't come to terms with. Um, you know, for so long, I was just living in survival mode and compartmentalizing. Um, the things that had happened that were beyond my control, things that were beyond my consent, and I was just powering through my days um, in this very in this way that I wasn't completely living within my mind and living within my body. And I wanted to be able to confront what had happened to me. Um, you know, these various layers of harm and abuse um, in childhood and in adulthood. Um, But to do that, I also had to take a step back and see, you know, these things that have happened to me are not only things that happened to me, they're not, you know, they're not interpersonal problems, they're structural problems. Um, Like you say, they are connected to so many other acts of violence and not just acts, but, you know, structures of violence from patriarchy to colonialism to capitalism, and these structures all depend on each other. And these like structures are collaborating with each other against us and against our capacity for tenderness and care. So I wanted to be able to take a step back and really situate where I was in this landscape of violence and see the kind of path that I could lead because you know I was in a turning point where Um, I didn't want to live the way that I had been living for so long. Um, And I didn't want, uh, I didn't want my trauma to hold me back anymore. And I don't want that to happen. So I'm trying to live my life in a more conscious way, um, you know, rooted in community too, of course, um, and see things more clearly, and I think the poems have led me to this place where I'm trying to see, you know, as much as possible um, and see as clearly as I can, um, you know, what what I cannot stand and what we should not be able to stand
0: anymore as a collective. It's unflinching, this collection, um, and it was, and I mean, it, it, it's come out at a, a very interesting time, because in the last few years, not, you know, just before the pandemic, increasingly we've had, there's a, there feels like a there is a massive shift happening with people just not being able to tolerate the, these systems From from my perspective, working here, it reminded me of where we had Amy Ramekas on our podcast recently talking about her book on reckoning, talking about the the things that happened to women in Canberra in the houses of parliament in Canberra and just there were moments in this book, you talk about, you know, you for example, this book you touch on, for example, the issues that Filipino women face um, in their space. And there were some particular words, particularly your poem uh, Vengeance Sequence, mm-hmm. that just, whew, my goodness, like you nail that. I don't want to say it, there is it's rage and anger, but there's a lot more to it. It's frustration and it's tiredness with the status quo. Uh, I love the lines of Filipino women, stop working. Empires shut down in a tantrum, refusing to care for themselves. We do not go back to work. Um, it, it's unflinching. It looks the reader in the eye and tells them, we we need to break this system. We need to fix this. Um, this collection is a reckoning, but it is also a warning, is it not?
3: Mm. Yeah, take care is often said. Um, or even the concept of care, um, is often, you know, we have this very simplistic narrative about care, but we don't question who does the care, upon whose backs, um, and upon whose care labor does the world depend. And more, uh, you know, more often, if you look at the global system of care, you'll see how exploitative that is, and how exploitative it is towards women of color, particularly, um, I always speak, you know, you mentioned a lot of my poems, um, uh, they talk about specifically Filipino women and the experiences of Filipino women, um, because I don't really want to uh, be speaking over the cultural experiences of other uh, community groups. So um, I try to keep it as specific as possible, but, Yeah, you see these global systems of care and how exploitative they are towards women of color um, uh, and Filipino women, um, particularly because Filipino women contribute so much to the Philippines' GDP. Um, There are millions of Filipino women workers all over the world um, in industries of care, in hospitals, in aged care homes, working um, in domestic care um, for the elderly and the sick all over the world. And um, it's all invisible labor for the most part. Um, So I wanted to really, you know, drive home that weight of care, um, how heavy it can be and how burdensome it can be. Um, And also just, you know, when we say take care, it is a warning, it is a warning to the people around us. You know, when women say take care to each other, they don't mean take care of yourself, they mean like, make sure you get home at night safe and like text me when you get home. So it is so loaded. These words, take care. And I wanted to, through these different poems in the collection, um, look at care work and care labor through a different kind of angle.
0: Yeah. Um, it is this where the title, like, because I it, I want to actually ask you a little bit more about this title if I can because. Um, the actual words themselves, how did this, how in terms of the the process of creating this collection, did this title really just nail it and summarize the whole thing for you as the name Take Care? Because they are powerful words and it's a great title. How does it, how did that kind of as you, as you were creating this collection, you were, you were putting together, you were covering a lot of ground with this, with this work that you were doing. How did did it just kind of emerge naturally? Or was there a particular moment where you realized this is it? This is what this mm. is the crux of the, of, what, of what your work is about?
3: Mm, I think it did emerge naturally. Um, I think there's no other way I would describe that process of finding the title because I was, um, you know, my obsessions were finding each other all at the same time in the same plane like this These questions about care labor, particularly coming from a family of Filipino women, where so many of us are overseas in in industries of care. Um, You know, learning how to take care of myself in the midst of trying to heal from the trauma. Also, just thinking about what it means to care at this moment, in time, in this moment, as well as when I was writing it in that moment when we're trying to care for one another and we're trying to care. For our communities, but all our all these systems are turned against us.
2: And we say,
3: you know, take care to each other at the end of every email, especially around that time, you know, when it was around March 2020, and everyone was, you know, so focused on trying, trying, trying to take more care of themselves. But you know, how, how, how do you do that? Uh, how do you do that when well, there are so many systems that collaborate against your care, your capacity to take care of yourself and the ones around you?
0: It summarizes this so well. And I want to kind of now talk about these systems that you t- that you go into in detail. You said in an interview with uh, Liminal, if i been pronouncing that correctly, in 2020, um, that one of the urgent reasons that you write is if I may quote it, quote, to reclaim the power from which people like me, women of color, survivors of violence, immigrants, etc., have been dispossessed. When I write from the body, I try to hold a mirror not to myself, but to the reader and the world too. Unquote. For for many readers, me personally, I, I'm, I found it very educational because I've come, come and come from a background in a place where this capitalist system has been beneficial for where I have come from in terms of where I am. But for people not like me, this is something that really affects them hugely. And there is grounds for serious uh, need for change here. So it felt very educational for me on a personal level. But for you, was it more than just that? Was it a case of you wanted to have people walk a mile in someone else's shoes? Or was it also that you needed to, again, highlight that there is a reckoning around this that needs to happen and needs to change? Uh,
3: For me, you know, moving from the poem, from poem to poem, the collection, especially the poems that were talking about uh, what it was like for me as a young girl um, being left behind in the Philippines by a mother who had to work overseas. Um, and send money back home and like the communities that um, I met all over the world, the Filipino of, of you know, Filipino domestic carers or um, Filipinos who worked in the in the healthcare industry overseas. I wanted to humanize us as much as possible and really drive home that, you know, we are real people with real communities. Um, and you know, for a lot of people on the outside, uh, it may not seem like our labor matters um, or that our labor is the only thing that matters about us and not actually ourselves, our hopes, our desires and our futures.
2: But I wanted
3: to, um, I wanted to humanize us as much as possible in these poems and especially um, shine some light on the ways that we delight you know even though you say the and a lot of people say that the poems are confronting and some of them quite dark a lot of them also are joyous and have so many moments of delight and i wanted to put all of those atmospheres and imagery and emotions together because you know we're and i like i as a poet and i as a human being and i'm like a Person and my communities are made up of full, you know, full people with um, with with so who are so much more than the labor that they provide. So, so yeah, I mean, it's not so much getting the reader to walk a mile in the shoes of myself or people in my community. It's just I want to celebrate as well as um, shine light on some of you know the burdens that I and we carry um, in my own
0: community. You certainly did and I just wanted to say just thank you it, because it really it came through and it's wonderful that that there are collections out there like this that talk about this. Um, I know I'm aware that we're a bit of, we're a bit short on time. Uh, so as kind of a final question, I don't want to kind of ask the boring question of what you what you want the audience to get out of it because obviously it's go read the book. But yeah, as as a final question, I, I always am curious when, when chatting with authors and poets. What did the creation of this book actually teach you? What was something that you learned about creating this work that you now look back on differently or view in a new light?
3: Hmm, that's a really interesting question because so many <laughs> different ways of answering are flooding to my mind. Um, the writing process was really intense and difficult. So I think, and uh, you know, it was it was liberating, but there were also so many moments of unease that I had to power through. And I think, you know, the writing process is just living. You know, um, not all not all writing is physical writing, but writing is just being in the world. And it taught me a different way of living in my body and being present in my body. And because I write so often from the archive of the body, you know, unearthing things from my personal history and my family and my community's history, I think, you know, writing, writing these poems and putting the collection together in this long arduous process just brought me home to myself in a different way. And I feel like I really have emerged from the writing and collecting of those poems, you know, a different writer, um, a different writer and um, just, I don't know, someone who takes a lot less bullshit um, compared to from before I uh, started writing and thinking about the work and thinking about interconnected systems of violence and how we are all implicated in this. And I just, yeah, it made me a patient writer, but like a lot less of a patient person.
0: <laughs> it's been wonderful to chat to you about this about this collection. Um, and I really hope readers take the time to, to check it out and pick apart what you have to say in this book, um, in this collection. You know, thank you for for taking time out of your day to come and chat with us. Um, And again, congratulations on making the short list. You should be really proud of this collection. It's a great collection. Thank you so much, Dave. Thanks for Um, having me. You're very welcome. Take Care is published by Giramondo Publishing and you can get your copy right now from booktopia.com.au. Now over to our fourth interview with Jennifer Down, author of Bodies of Light. Hello, I'm Nick Vasiliev and I'm delighted to be here talking with you today. And I'm joined Today, over the magic uh, of Zoom, through the wonderful world of Zoom by Jennifer Down. She is a writer and editor whose work has appeared in The Age, Saturday Paper, Australian Book Review and Literary Hub, and she has been, she's uh, well, the recipient of the Sydney Morning Herald Young Novelist of the Year, both in 2017 and 2018. Her debut novel, Our Magic Hour, was shortlisted for the 2014 Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript but we're here today to talk about the third novel, uh, *Bodies of Light*, which has made the Stella shortlist this year. Jennifer, welcome.
4: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: It's it's a pleasure to have you, and it's a pleasure to to sit here and talk about this wonderful novel that you have put together. Um, first of all, congratulations uh, on making the Stella. Uh, Same here. And and to shower you with a little bit of praise and and allow you to to blow your trumpet for a little bit, um, I would like to just read what the Stella uh, judges said about your book, um, if I may, for a second. Quote, this is an ambitious novel spanning decades and locales that sees Down demonstrate her imaginative range and take risks following the success of her previous two books. The result is a daring and compelling work um, suffused with pathos an impressive degree of empathetic vulnerability unquote. Wow yes please that's big, sounds- <laughs> big, <words. laughs> big words How does it actually feel to be included in the Stella shortlist?
4: Oh it's a huge honor especially um, I mean given this year is the first that the, um, the prize has been open to poetry as well as other forms. Um, and the, the the I guess the resulting both long and short list was so it was so strong. It feels um, yeah a huge honor and, and kind of privilege to be um, yeah counted among among the shortlistees. It,
0: it was a very fascinating shortlist when we uh, w- w- very fascinating longlist when it originally came out rather. And to see your book in there included was 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 wonderful as well. Um, but again, fa- I think the Stella have really done a fantastic job highlighting not just you know, fiction, but again, like you say, poetry, nonfiction, um, everything—they cover a lot of ground with this. With this list, let's talk about your book. Let's talk about Bodies of Light, and also let's talk about Maggie Sullivan, mm. uh, your uh, the narrator of this book—a a kid who is, I guess, institutionalized and in caught between foster homes, and and you know, her, her father is a drug, a drug drug addict, her mother, OD'd in a, in a toilet. She. Crafts new identities for herself. She moves countries and everything, and yet trauma and abandonment follow her. Mm. Uh, You know the ways in which, kind of similar in the ways in which that she had been failed over and over by all the institutions and individuals that she comes across. This is a this is a a strong difficult. This is a difficult read, but a necessary read. I just was wondering how, how difficult was it to craft this character and craft this story um
4: I guess uh, difficult in the sense that um you know it's as you kind of alluded to um it's um a quite heavy subject matter but not difficult in the sense that um it's a sort of story, I mean, specifically in regards to um, residential and out-of-home care in Australia, there's not a lot um, about that that we see both you know, either in uh, fiction or in uh, you know, any kind of media or art representation. Um, it exists, but it's few and far between. And in fiction or in film, it tends to be um, a kind of, I guess, a, a narrow perspective, I would say that can either um, sensationalize or romanticize the experience um, or um, what we much of what we see is also through, kind of mediated through the American or Hollywood lens, which um, you know, is, is not inherently problematic, but is also not necessarily representative of, of what it means to have survived that system in, in this particular nation state, right? So um, I guess it felt like an easy, not, not an easy choice, but a compelling choice um, in terms of you know narrative and subject matter, because um, it you know it was it felt like a small place that I could just sort of shine a light.
0: What I love about it particularly is the so many people. I think this can, this could is an uncomfortable subject for a lot of people. Um, either people who have been in the system, or people who know people who've been in the system, or even so, even to the case of people who have failed, people who and the, and people that they know who have ended up in the system. Um, what I found particularly fascinating reading this book is you, you. When you're talking about heavy subject matter, I think so many people often will. It's a it's a tough line to straddle, because some people may look at what you're trying to say and go outright reject it based on their own experiences and take the approach of sweep it just under and or take the approach of let's just sweep it under the carpet and not worry about it. But what I love about it is that you. You don't pull your punches, but you are—you uh, you go out, you you do it. You really get the reader invested in this, and really, it's not just a case of telling the reader you are showing why this matters, um, which I think it should is really—it's an achievement. It's a—it's a difficult line to straddle, and I think with this book, you do—you do it wonderfully.
4: Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, I think um, to do you know, like one of the biggest kind of questions that I wrestled with the whole time I was writing this book was how can I tell this story without um, veering into uh, sensationalism or trauma porn or kind of, yeah. um, uh, you know, making it seem um, like the trauma is uh, a kind of structural or narrative technique rather than uh, a reflection of, of, of someone's lived experience. And, of course, it is, it is a work of fiction, but um, it's very much steeped in historical um, references and fact and and heavy research and, you know, witness and first-person uh, testimony from survivors. And so mm-hmm. it felt important to me to kind of approach it in, in a forensic um, way and to, like, you know, the whole, the whole idea of first-person narrative, right, it, it felt important that it be um, a really close reading so that, um, yeah, it, it felt... it it, I kind of wanted it to feel like a testimony um and a few people have said it reads like memoir which certainly wasn't my intention but um over time I've come to really appreciate that and feel quite humbled by it because uh you know I I think that that to me is the opposite um of something that reads as voyeurism I, I want the reader to kind of walk alongside this person and witness um witness everything that happens to to her in her life not just the traumatic things but you know the the moments of joy and of and of calm um uh, and of stability as well and um yeah to, to have that narrative function as a kind of witnessing rather than um something that's kind of grotesque or um I don't know splashy
0: glorifying you don't want yeah. it to be glorifying you want it to be real um
4: no not but nor do I want it to be sort of sanitized and that you know it is a really hard line to walk but yeah. uh, but, yeah, I mean, hopefully, I, I, you know, I, I can't be the judge of whether I've got it right, but hopefully, um, hopefully, I don't know, I, 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 it landed somewhere near where, where I was hoping.
0: So talk me through this, this actual process of you of crafting this voice. So I'm imagining you did a lot of research. You would have listened to a lot of people. Um, what was that, that process like going down that, that rabbit hole and learning about the issues that, that Maggie goes through in this book?
4: Um I mean it, it it's awful is is the short answer I think I I, think I said to a couple of people before I I maybe came into I came into the writing process with perhaps uh, a, a broader knowledge than the the average person of of um what it means to exist as a as a care uh, sorry what it means to exist as a kid um, in the care of the state, not because I had that experience myself, but because um, um many members of my family work in um you know welfare adjacent roles and I kind of grew up um with you know hearing these stories um as part of my day-to-day and so I was always aware of um some of these issues as as being kind of a baseline reality for a lot of young people um and then it you know it had always been uh I don't want to say passion that sounds too strong a word it's not like i've been out there on the streets you know fundraising or taking in foster children myself but i'd always it was always an issue that um that felt very compelling to me and, and very distressing and i you know i think even from the time i was a teenager i was kind of being used by the way that um not even just mainstream media really all media uh just refuses to kind of acknowledge what's going on and i always kind of wondered like is that because child abuse is just the you know the one thing that is too like white hot and awful for us to bear as a society but then you know as I got older I was like no we're we're so compelled by true crime narratives or by you know law and order SVU type shows and uh you know it's it's not that we abhor violence as a society right so like what is it about about the mistreatment of um vulnerable children that is so uncomfortable for us and I think in part it's because you know we, we don't like the idea that um uh we are in part responsible for it as 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 citizens you know like the, these are effectively our tax, tax dollars um going towards some of this stuff if you want to take the kind of Murdoch media approach I guess and so maybe that's part of it I still don't understand it but um, I guess that's a long way of saying I came into the research process with, I, I would say, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more general knowledge than, than most people would have. And I was still, um, I wouldn't say shocked by anything I read, but um, it's there's something really uh, tragic and numbing when you just start to read about you know the, the sheer volume of things that young people have endured, and not just endured, but then carried with them for the rest of for the rest of their time, and how that you know shapes um, the rest of their lives and affects relationships with others, their ability to find you know meaningful work, and to forge um, connections with partners and friends and children and grandchildren. Um, it, it really spins out into these. Uh, I don't know, the, the, there are just perennial uh, consequences of, of things that happen when you're very young. And so I, I think um, certainly the research was was challenging in the sense that, um, you know, you think at some point you might become a bit inured to to the horrors and there's always something more awful than what you've read um, the day before, and and then I I personally wanted to kind of I started wanting to tell people about it, you know, and and of course no one wants to it's, it's such an ugly thing to talk about. But I, I kind of got to the point a few years in where I was like, why does nobody know this? Why is no one talking about this? Um, so it probably, I guess, uh, made me not a very fun, like, housemate or, or friend to, to be around for a while. Um, I think my, like, my pub conversations were not, were not the most um, uplifting. But, um, I, you know, like, I'm being flipped, but I do think it's important to, to talk about and, and to kind of bring this stuff into, into the public consciousness.
0: You certainly do with this book. Um, You certainly, it is is a a topic starter. It's a a conversation starter um, with this book. And one particular thing I I, I really admired was the tackling of trauma in this book, Um, almost the cyclical cyclical nature of it uh, throughout the book. I mean, I got a sense of the fact that you really wanted to tackle the fact that Maggie has been a product of the world in which she grew up. Um, but as, as you mentioned, the, the, the effects that happen in this particular period of many children's lives go on to affect them for the rest of their life. But I also got a sense you were also interested in trauma, the actual effects of trauma itself um, and, and the effects it has. What's the, the one, in your opinion, misconception mm-hmm. people have about trauma that you, you know, maybe either sought to address in this book or learnt yourself while writing it?
4: Well, um, that's a big question, and I want to preface this by saying I'm, like, not a psychologist. I and have no claim to, to any expertise. I'm just a um, a foolish person, like a monkey with a typewriter. I think, um, I don't know, I definitely didn't seek to address this question in writing, but something that I've kind of become really interested in is the way that um, society conceives of, you know, the, the archetypal survivor as... Um, as often needing to make something productive from their trauma or to kind of present their trauma in a palatable way or to use it, to harness it in some way so that, you know, it provides a, some kind of moral lesson to other people or or is informative in some way. And this whole idea of, like, resilience and, and so on and so forth. And as I said, I absolutely was not writing this, with you know, kind of consciously, um, but... I've said in a couple of other interviews that this is not a, a kind of redemptive story. It's very much a, a story of survivorship. And um I don't know that the, you know, even since the book's been published, the more I read and the more I learn, the more I think we really need to reject um or subvert that idea that, that to be a, a kind of good. or or useful survivor right is I mean firstly that that's even a thing like if you're a survivor you're a survivor there's no right way to to kind of approach the rest of your life um but also that that um you know traumatic experiences are only as useful as uh as as the person who is able to kind of mold them into something palatable and presentable and if a survivor is able to do that like power to them. I, there's, I, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I think it can be enormously um, you know, I think it can provide other people with a great sense of um uh comfort and and help um other people to feel like they're not alone. I think that's really important. But also if if for you surviving means like getting up and um making a cup of coffee and taking a dog for a walk and not talking about the things that you've experienced, then that's also totally fine. And and I don't know, I just, I, I really increasingly reject this model that we've kind of collectively developed of, of the, the ideal survivor or um, the kind of, the, uh, I don't know, the, yeah, the palatable or the the presentable survivor, I guess.
0: I particularly love you discussing about the idea that, that survival takes many forms. And I think it's also important, for the, and it kind of comes through in, in the book, that people see that, that, Sometimes, you know, people are, have, have gone through so much and, and they do the best they can. And sometimes the, and the best they can is, can be difficult sometimes. Um, and the importance is that you understand that um, and, under, and sympathise where they're coming from, which I think is really cro- um, dealt with or examined well in the book, um, especially through, through the narrator. I do want to ask one last question kind of about, uh, I want to ask you a little bit about Melbourne in this mm-hmm. book. If you can. Um, you're Victorian um, and you, you really do put the reader in a place with this book, kind of your southeast Melbourne uh, from the 1970s uh, into the present. Um, what were some of the difficulties of translating that that time frame to the page? Because obviously it's a part of the world that people are very familiar with and, and people have a lot of connections, connotations and and conceptions about uh, what it was like during that time period?
4: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, that was one of the easier parts. And I guess I kind of made a um, an unconscious choice in some ways too. So I knew that I wanted to have this narrative that spanned, you know, several decades. And so um, starting it in the 70s was was almost more of a structural choice than anything else. You know, I was kind of working back with this timeline and I'm prodigiously bad with numbers and dates. So I had to take quite a mechanical approach to it. Um, but I realised that it was probably going, you know, it moved around a little bit, but it was always kind of, the, the beginning of the narrative was always kind of early to mid-70s. And um, I was born in 1990, so I don't have much of like, a, a you know, a consciousness um, of anything before about 93, but I did grow up in, in a similar area. In fact, um, you know, in, um, there's a one of the suburbs where, Um, Maggie Lives Briefly is is where I grew up and where my parents still live Um, and my mum a a lot of the early um, passages are set in and around Dandenong which is sort of this um, daggy outer suburban um, uh, suburb that was previously kind of it it was it was quasi-rural right so that was where my um, my mum grew up in the 70s and where you know she went to high school and so that for that reason, I think probably subconsciously I decided to set it out there. It also did fit in terms of um, you know the um, the kind of the demographic and and things like that. But um, it was great because I was able to like very early on in the writing process, I was able to kind of get in get in the car with her and we drove around. And she you know she uh, as I said went to high school there, but also worked in Dandenong for for many years. And she was able to kind of um, I guess my perception of it, like I learned to drive there, right? So I I know the streets at this this kind of um, granular level, but I was able to drive with her and she could say, oh, well, this was where, um, you know, this old pub used to be. It closed down. Um, There was, you know, this happened or... um, when I was a welfare worker, we used to put kids in this house, or um, you know, this this was where the market was on on Wednesdays, and it always smelled like cow shit. And of course, now it doesn't because it's very much like you know, it's a very suburban area now. But in the '70s, it was um, was much more rural, and so that was really instrumental early on. Um, and you know, that wasn't that wasn't the only research. There was a lot more kind of painstaking um, forensic combing of old maps and things like that as well. But and old photographs were really useful. But I guess that was kind of the starting point was just driving around and seeing those streets that I kind of know quite intimately a lot of the time, but seeing them through the lens of somebody who was there, you know, 40 years ago.
0: You definitely do nail the place, which was something that, I mean, it was, it was was intrinsic to the book, which I, I, you know, I loved and it was, it felt, it almost felt like a a character in itself um, the world of Melbourne. Um, I I know that we're, we're running short on time, so I'll kind of finish with a, question that i've kind of put to all of the the shortlistees uh, who've who've made it or shortlisters rather uh i don't want to ask you the boring question of what do you want the audience to get out of this book because of course the answer is well go read it and make <laughs> up your own mind yourself so i instead I'll, i want to ask what did the creation of this book actually teach you well um i think somebody somebody if i can steal somebody
4: else's answer like a, a reader um When um, they read it, they said that, um, because I kind of kept joking before it was published about how this book is really sad and it's like unremittingly bleak and blah, blah, blah. And I think for a lot of readers, it probably is. Um, And I'd also, to be fair, lost all perspective of it. Like, you know, I developed a very dark sense of humour and when I was writing this book, I kind of lost all sense of what was sad or not sad or okay or not okay. But um, one as somebody... A gentleman who read it said made this really lovely comment that um, you know, it, of course, it, there are many sad moments, but he also felt a sense of hope in the sense that it was a reminder of how it is possible to, um, you know, through through reinvention, whatever format that takes, to um, to live so many different lives across you know the the course of your your time here and. I thought that was really beautiful. Um, I, I certainly didn't go into the writing process consciously um, trying to do that, but I think, um, yeah, the more the more that I speak to people who've read the book, um, that part of it seems to really resonate with people. You know, the idea that we have, um, and I don't mean this in the toxic positivity way of like, you know, getting up and choosing to be the best you you can be every day, but just in the sense of um, possibility and and the the potential for change and and renewal after even you know something really awful has happened um there's you know there's always potential for uh for something new
0: it's a really positive sentiment to to come from but given <laughs> given the world the, the, the nooks and crannies you had to dive into with this book um i love that 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 was kind of the space where you, you ended up jennifer it's it's been a pleasure chatting to you about this book and once again just congratulations for making the short thank list
4: thank you so much thank you for having me
0: it um it's been a pleasure chatting to you and for all of our listeners uh, bodies of lights is published by text publishing and you can get your copy right now from booktopia.com.au now for our final interview i sit down with anwin crawford author of No Document. Hi, I'm Nick Vasiliev and I'm delighted to be talking with you today. And it's especially exciting because I'm joined by Anne Crawford. She's a longtime zine maker and collaborative visual artist whose work has appeared in publications, including The Monthly, The New Yorker, The White Review and Sydney Review of Books. In 2021, she also won the Walkley Pascal Prize for Arts Criticism and she's the author of Live Through This and No Document, the latter of which has made it onto the shortlist for the Stella Prize this year. Eamon, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, So for all of our listeners who might not be familiar with with No Document, can you tell us a little bit about this, uh, this work?
5: It's like my nightmare question, honestly. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I spent I spent three and a half years writing this book and three and a half years dodging the question, actually closer to four years, dodging the question of like what it's about, quote unquote, and I still don't really have a satisfactory answer to that question. Um, honestly, the only answer I have, what no document is about is that it's about itself it's a book that it's about that's about itself because it's an elegy i mean at heart the book is an elegy for a very close friend of mine who i met um at art school when we were in our late teens in the in the early 2000s and you know we were artistic collaborators and also political comrades and the kind of connection between Art making and activism was very strong for both of us. Um, And he died in 2010 when he was 30. And yeah, so this this is at heart an elegy for him, but it's also about a whole bunch of other things as well. And, you know, the thing with elegies is that they're a kind of, um, and I have a background in poetry as well, I should say, which I think is important to the book. you know, an elegy, an elegy is a kind of compensatory labor, you know, you're trying to just like a a gravestone or a burial mound or a memorial quilt or a Facebook wall, all these things that we do after people die that are kind of about doing a kind of work that is meant to honour the dead through the effort and the attention and the kind of love that you put into this memorialising. But at the same time, this kind of compensatory labour can't make up for the absence. You know, it can't, it can't take the measure of that absence in any proper way. So in a sense, no document, and this is partly why it's called no document, I think, is, is that it's, yeah, the book is a kind of incomplete record of its own making. It's an attempt to, <laughs> it's an attempt to write an elegy, but an elegy is always, I think on some fundamental level of failure because you can't bring back the dead. And I think all elegists know this at heart. This is kind of the terrible paradox of writing an elegy is that you're writing something that will never be read by the person it's intended for and the absence at the heart of the work can't be resolved. So that's my sexy pitch as to what no document is.
0: I feel I'm sorry. I feel like I really threw you in the deep end with that because, like, describing this book is already quite a difficult, complex thing. Very difficult. But nice to hit you with a with a with a a love a, a quote unquote easy question to start us off. But with this particular book, it is it is very difficult. And this you cover a lot of ground in this book, and it reminded me. I've just. You know, re- reread, and we were talking about this before we, we started recording. It reminded me of a, of a book called Mortals, which came out a few years ago, and it, which is similarly examined this kind of space of death and and grief. But here, you go into into a lot of other spaces. Uh, with mm-hmm. it, you talk about history, and you talk about disappearing artworks. I feel like I'm I'm really we've only got a few minutes to talk about this podcast, this book, and I feel like doing so is such a a disservice to this book. Um, But even disappearing places of your youth as Uh well, like you talk about Sydney and Uh how it is changing as a place, which I found really fascinating because I personally grew up in the country and have really started to notice the places that I grew up in changing as well. And you also talk about the boundaries like boundaries that we have within our society in general, whether it be, you know, in, through the work, through whether it be social, cultural, artistic, physical, whatever it may be. What is it about this space of, of study that fascinates you so much? Because it is quite, it can seem quite a general, Seem to tackle, but here you go into a lot of detail. What what is it about this space that fascinates you so much?
5: I mean, I guess this is a long term preoccupation of mine, both particularly as a visual artist, but also as an activist. You know, like I said, and and um, you know, one of the strands that the book traces in particular is a kind of um, the history. The contemporary history, I should say, because it has a long it has a long history. The contemporary history of um, government policy, bipartisan government policy in Australia to exclude refugees who arrive here by boat, mm. um, and you know, I mean, this wasn't an arbitrary choice on my part. It's because it's a strand of activism that I've been involved in in various ways for a long time, mm. and you know uh, I as a young woman I guess when I you know I started art school in 2001 which is where I met my friend who this book is for but 2001 is obviously also the year not only of the kind of the beginning of the war on terror but something that very closely coincided with that which is the um, arrival of the, the the Tampa you know what's kind of known as the Tampa incident which is this you know, during the 2001 federal election campaign when John Howard, you know, was prime minister and ended up being successfully re-elected as prime minister, there was this very, I'm just going to say racist campaign waged um, against asylum seekers arriving from boat who who were mostly fleeing the Taliban that Australia and the United States and other countries had just bombed. Um, so we were in this situation where refugees who were being displaced by military action of Western countries in Afghanistan were arriving here by boat and were then being taken to kind of offshore detention centers. Um, you know, so I was very involved, particularly at this at this point with with kind of activism around that at kind of going to several detention centers um, including ones that at the time were kind of on the mainland of Australia, like um, the Woomera Detention Centre, which was an infamous detention centre um, mm-hmm. on Kakadu country in the middle of the South Australian desert. Um, and, you know, obviously the kind of like long-term hysteria around in quote-unquote invasion by boat people, boat people, quote unquote, in Australia is a kind of replaying of a deep, um, of a kind of deep psychological awareness of the fact that the nation exists in the first place because it was invaded by boat people, you know. Um, So these two things are tied together. And for myself as as a kind of white settler in Australia on stolen land, trying to think to through these two things together, trying to think through both a kind of anti-racist organizing and resistance to um, policies of border control, while also being aware of the kind of systemic violence that I am a part of as a settler on stolen land. You know, the, these two things can't be separated from each other, so... Um, this is another very long-winded and, you know, unsexy answer to a question. But, uh, but this is yeah, this is where the this is kind of where my I guess preoccupation with borders springs from. And and in the book, it's partly represented in visual ways. Um, the book has a lot of, and this comes out of my background as a visual artist too. But um, there are a lot of kind of formal qualities in the book that I guess, in a sense, reproduce the notion of the border. So there are a lot of like lines and strike throughs. There are a lot of boxes. Um, There's a lot of space, like a lot of one kind of one sentence stanzas that are separated from each other by space. So this this kind of notion, notion of things being um, of lines, of divisions, of borders, and then, of course, you know, because it's an elegy, there's also this fundamental border that you can't cross, which is the border between the living and the dead. You know, so mm. that is also another border that is at the heart of the work.
0: It it was it was so fascinating just watching you examine this this space, and also I dare say, like very timely, considering that, especially over the course of this year, it things have the. These ideas of borders and, and division have even have become even more pro- profound, given context around what's happening right now,
5: um, like in the Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, you know, of course, one of the things that has totally alarmed and appalled me, and I think a lot of other people too, in in um, I guess witnessing the coverage of of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is is the way in which various politicians and media commentators have been very kind of quick to offer their sympathy to Ukrainian refugees, which is all will and good, but that sympathy is entirely absent when it comes to refugees from non-European countries. So, you know, there's a very obvious and systemic racism at work in a lot of the media coverage of mm. Ukraine because, you know, they seem to be like us, you know, again, in, in air quotes, um, and, you know, one of the fundamental questions that drives no document is the question, you know, and this this is, in a sense, um, I'm going to borrow here from the theorist uh, Judith Butler, who's a um, very influential political theorist, but um, Judith Butler kind of poses this question in a number of um, their books about, you know, when, when is life grievable? Who is grievable? Who Who is able to be mourned because their life is seen as having value in the first place um, So that's one of the questions that drive that drives the book really is it's a work of mourning but I think not only just for the friend for whom it's you know it's it's written it's it's about trying to think through how we can mourn those, you know, for instance, people who have, Drowned at sea, trying to reach Australia. How we can mourn? How we can mourn these people who have been placed into a space where you know a kind of political and rhetorical space where they are seen to be um, without value, that their lives were without value, and therefore that their deaths also don't matter.
3: Mm.
0: Mm. It, a good, a good point. Someone, some I saw someone wrote in an article examining your book, and they put an analogy on it, which was great which is you, you ask not merely about who are we but the even and on the conflict on the subject of this the question of what is quote-unquote we um mm. as a yes as an as, as a group and I get the sense you did want to reimagine this but and and I know you know given political the political background there are also I don't want to, of course, put any sort, of, do any sort of, you know, psychoanalysis or anything, because obviously we all we all experience. Inter- I'm all in favour of psychoanalysis.
5: <laughs> <ways>. <laughs> there's, 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 there's far too little psychoanalysis in the contemporary world, as far as I'm concerned. We could do it a lot more.
0: <laughs> um, but with these actual boundaries themselves, I, I I got a sense that you really wanted to. I don't I don't want to say break the boundaries down. Um, because is that, first of all, is that even possible um, in terms of an examination of what, quote, unquote, we are, but at least either bring an awareness to the fact that these boundaries are just, it's not just a, a case of of what you see on on, on television or whatever yeah. or within the spaces of, say, the, uh, seen as for, quote, mourning in the strictest sense of the word. Um, is it just more of an, like, where does that, I get a sense that that I feel like I'm now getting long-winded with my question as well. Uh, okay. But can we actually make cha- bring these boundaries down? Or is it just something that is simply systemic within human nature and the concept of what we are?
5: No, I don't believe in a kind of ahistorical notion of human, human nature as some stable thing, you know, and mm. oh, dear, what a shame. It's just inevitable that, you know, we've, we've ended up living in this, world that's um that's full of kind of social hierarchy and racial division and and you know the kind of exploitation of planet earth unto its ultimate death that's Mm, that's not an inevitable part of human nature you know I mean I'm I'm as someone of the kind of radical left I'm very much a kind of historical materialist you know I want to know the actual historic and reasons why things have happened um and why the world is as is as it is and you know, I would very much like to see those kind of social divisions um, demolished, um, dismantled. Um, I guess, though, too, for me, there's a kind of. I have a certain caution around the notion of the. I mean, I I, I very much believe in the in the kind of. Collective and in collective organising and thinking in collective terms. At the same time, I'm very aware, again as a kind of student of history, of the ways in which um, thinking in terms of the collective, in terms of a we, almost inevitably means an exclusion. You know, if if there is a we, then someone or something is outside of the we. You know, so how how do you then um, organise collectively to dismantle these kind of hierarchies without producing further exclusions you mm. know and again you know how do i specifically as a kind of settler on sovereign indigenous land how do i how do i organize against the kind of violence of national borders while also not you know furthering furthering the work of kind of colonization Um, yeah (laughs) and and these aren't these aren't questions that I can answer on my own I mean Mm. I think all these questions are present in the book but the book is not an attempt to answer any of these questions because I don't think I don't think I can answer them myself I think they have to be answered like I say collectively and, and and over and over time and through through action, you know, um, and through art too. You know, I mean, Mm. apart from anything else, the book is a kind of, um, I guess, a testament to what all kinds of artists and art making has meant to me and the ways in which art can, um, in a sense, keep our imaginations free, you know, can allow us to envisage versions of the world that have yet to exist Mm.
0: Mm. and yeah it's and I think that's one of the great wonders the great wonderful things about art and the way that it it can reinterpret all of these things but I also just love you know the really interesting thing about what you said there because it is a great point that you mentioned that the book offers no concrete answers or solutions because one for a thing for a fact we're dealing with topics that are so huge and considerable that it is to to almost wrap it up in a bow I think would be there's no way you could capture all the different perspectives on it but but even then I still love this find this this examination so fascinating because within itself these are the spaces where these questions are being asked the book itself becomes an examination to to challenge the to, to actually put these questions out there and challenge them which I think is is something that we need to do. Mm. Um, it's important that it becomes that space itself.
5: Well, I hope it's a book that allows people to kind of think, but I I never, as a writer or as an artist, want to tell people how to think or what to think, you know, and I, I always feel frustrated by work, you know, when I encounter work myself as a reader or as a viewer or whatever that, um doesn't extend me the respect of allowing me to make up my own mind you know work work that tries to kind of um dictate (laughs) a reading I find really irritating and so it was always in my mind that I wanted the book to be very um open-ended in that way and and to be a book that each reader would really kind of put together um and have a kind of that each reader would have a different encounter with it partly because that kind of notion was very important to my friend and i when we were young artists you know a lot of our work was done he came from a kind of graffiti art background and a lot of our work was done on the street you know um kind of very informally and generally illegally um, but but part of our part of why we were drawn to working on the street and kind of outside of formal gallery spaces is that we kind of had this notion that, you know, if, if you were to just encounter something in your day-to-day life, like on a wall or on a reclaimed billboard or in an empty building or whatever, that, um, that you, could, you could kind of come to it with your own um, understanding, you know, and, 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 and kind of figure out for yourself kind of why the work was there, what it was saying, what mm-hmm. it was trying to do as opposed to sometimes the kind of imbalance that can exist, you know, when you go to a museum or a gallery and you kind of feel quite overawed and like, you know, every, the whole thing is a bit sacred and, you know, that you, you kind of, you, you feel as if, sometimes you can feel intimidated into feeling like you can't think about the work that you're looking at because you're not meant to, because you're standing in this big museum that's like a church, you know? <laughs> and, and so I never... Yeah, I never want to feel, I never want readers to feel that I'm speaking down to them in any way. You know, I want, I want, I want a kind of equal participation between us. Even though I'm the one who's written the book, Mm. you as a reader can really um, uh, kind of put it together how you choose, I hope.
0: (laughs) Well, it definitely does that because the the lack, I think if, you, the questions that are posed is is something that the reader is encouraged to engage with and examine mm. on their own terms it is wonderful that that people have responded to it the way it has um that they have uh because it is it, you are touching on so many things here and i love and i also love when examining it, making the shortlist that what what the seller judges had to actually say about this book and i'm going to Uh, read a quote back to you and shower you with a little bit of praise for a moment uh in terms of what they said about the book um and they said quote this work is a complex deeply thought and deeply felt ode to friendship and collaboration there is a persistent feeling that through grief remarkable and devastating one is able to temporary glimpse, glimpse everything they need to know the emotional paradoxical tumble of grief and hope represents a universal desire for meaningful change and no document implores us to harness that desire collectively." Unquote. And, I, and I'm, and, uh, there is a, a, longer quote that is, uh, that is on the Stella Prize, which I'll, which I'll link to in the description. Um, for you personally, we, we, I know we again talked about this before you jumped on, but how does it feel actually to, to be included uh, in the Stella in for, for this, for this work?
5: I mean, it's an honor, it's a it's a it's a real honor to be included on the shortlist because it's such a strong long list, you know, um, and I think the long overdue inclusion of poetry uh, mm. on the Stella Prize has made a world of difference. And you know, for myself, I was always one of those people who could never understand why it was excluded in the first place, and. You know, so I think I think the inclusion of poetry is, um, yeah, long overdue and really wonderful. And, you know, um, I mean, I didn't I didn't I don't I didn't know what was on the rest of the long list until the rest of the long list was announced. And I had read every poetry title on the long list when the long list was announced. And I was so, um, yeah, so pleased and, and and honored to be among um, the company of those poets. Um, yeah because my book draws so um directly upon poetry um and yeah so so to be included on the shortlist um from among such a strong and interesting and i think genuinely um you know unconventional field of writers on the long list that's that you know that's a real that's a real honor
0: and it's well deserved I think uh, it, there's, it just goes to show how much wonderful poetry has come out um, mm. in this in this particular time. and I think it's wonderful that yeah. this art film is is getting noticed by by prizes like a seller. Um, yeah,
5: for sure. It makes a difference because you know poetry is so marginalized in commercial terms, and yeah, and and, and I do very much believe that the real strength of writing that's being produced in Australia, is, is coming from poetry and so if more readers find poetry because of the Stella then that's all for the best.
0: Yes I hope so yeah it, it's I do think it's it, particularly in this day and age has been very much an underappreciated art form and hopefully we can see that change. I, I'm i aware that we are we are short on time so I'll leave you with a with a final a final question. Mm-hmm. Um, I never I always don't I always for all of our listeners uh, I, I don't always say to them what do you hope listeners will get out of it because the answer I want I always would respond if I was in that position was well go read the book and find out for yourself Um, (laughs) yeah so instead I want to ask because you were with this book for so long and -hmm. you covered so much what did this what did no document teach you
5: what did it teach me
0: Mm. do you look upon the world in a different way now for example
5: no not especially that but I think it did I think it did teach me maybe that I'm more optimistic than I thought I was. I mean, for a book that's about a lot of very serious, serious things, a number of people have said to me that they found it very hopeful. And I think that's true. I mean, I think by the time I got to the end of it, I was surprised for myself at how much kind of hope, maybe a testament of a natural optimist than I am. But then maybe I discovered that I'm an optimist too. In so far as, you know, in spite of everything, I don't think that history is ever foreclosed in its meanings. I don't think that the kind of um, events of history are ever inevitable. and you know, when we think of them as inevitable or as human nature or whatever, we we tend to allow ourselves a kind of passivity in the face of events that I don't think is very helpful, to put it mildly. So, so kind of, yeah. I think I think the book taught me that I, I still very much believe in the possibility of. Change on a kind of widespread and systemic level. Um, yeah, I think I went through a long period of despair, not only after my friend's death, but you know, in the wake of certain events that this book documents, like for instance, the invasion of Iraq in two thousand and three. Mm. You know, um, yeah, I, th- I think I had a long time of feeling that things were pretty hopeless, and and but this book. When i finished the book i realized that it had a lot more hope in it than i had anticipated that it was going to so that's probably a good thing
0: i love that i love that you feel more optimistic that's i mean considering the, the ground on that some, covered, on some <laughs> day, <laughs> I, I think considering the ground that you've covered uh i reckon that is an amazing learning to take from from this uh, I could honestly chat to you all day, um, but I'm aware <laughs> that we are—we're uh, very much—we're very much, we're very much out, we're of time. out of time. I'm sorry, but Alan Crawford, thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting to you about this book, and again, congratulations for making the Stella Shortlist.
5: Thank you, thanks, Nick.
0: No document is published by Euromondo Publishing, and you can get your copy right now from Booktopia.com.au. Thanks to all of our guests, and congratulations to all for making the Stella Prize shortlist for 2022. You can find links to all of the books discussed today in our show notes, or head over to booktopia.com.au. The winner of the Stella Prize will be announced on April 28th, and we'll be taking home $50,000 in prize money. We wish all shortlisted authors the best of luck. Join us next week as we return to our usual episode format with next Wednesday seeing us sit down for an Australian non-fiction special, which will see us chatting with Indira Naidu and Peter Fitzsimons. Thanks for listening and never stop reading.